From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. So this metaphor that we all have of the marketplace of ideas, yeah, which is completely imbued in our logic of how we think about information, that eventually through some sort of weird rational choice theory, the best information will win out and quality will win out and we just have to be patient, has turned out to be in an era of information abundance, nonsense. Hello, welcome to Mr. Crunch on the Vox Media Podcast Network. A couple of years ago, I read a book by a guy I'd not heard of before, a guy named Peter Pomerantsev, called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And it was just like a mind-blowing book about how media worked in modern Russia. It was recommended to me, um, though it was not about Donald Trump, because they, they, a lot of folks said, this is what the media is becoming here. And I read it, and it really did at least offer one lens that I felt was necessary on the way that ideas of truth and reality were breaking down and how that had happened in Russia first and what looking at the world through that lens would get you. Um, now, Pomerantsev, who's a senior fellow at the London School of Economics and co-directs the ARENA program there, is out with a new book called This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. And like I would say it is like a big jump through that mirror, <laughs> not just in Russia, but in a bunch of other places around the world. It's a fantastic, strange, and very scary book. And this is a fantastic, strange, and at times very scary conversation. And he's just a great conversationalist. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Uh, I'm not going to introduce his name again because we spend the first part of this podcast trying to say it. Peter Pomerantsev, welcome to the show. <laughs> that was a really nice pronunciation of my name. Thank you. <laughs> you told me to just mumble something. I was. Yeah, that was me being polite. I'm English, uh, but with a Russian name. Now, you're meant to roll the R's. How do you say it? Pomerantsev. It's meant to be like, a, that's you know. That's a sexy way of saying your that's, name. That's, I, well, I, you said that. It's get, getting hot in here already. <laughs> um, that's actually, the pronunciation is uh, not the easiest bridge, but also not the worst bridge to where I wanted to start, which is, so I read your first book, um, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And it was like, psychedelically like a different way of looking at the world. And then your second book is in some ways even more deeply rooted in Russia as this distorted mirror for understanding what has happened in America, in the UK, and a bunch of other countries. I want to kind of start with the role Russia is playing in your work, where you write, the future, or rather the futureless present, arrive first in Russia. What is the futureless present? Yeah. I mean, as you say, my first book was about Russia, and I tried to diagnose 
a new type of quasi-authoritarian politics that was developing there. I mean, since then, it's become much more overtly authoritarian. Then they were still playing with ideas like managed democracy and undermining And what years were you living there? So 2001, 2010, and my first book kind of covers Russia from 2001 until 2015. So in the last bit of the book, I'm back in London, but I covered the war. So it ends with the invasion of Ukraine. So it's the Putin, the Putin, the yeah. two, the three Putin terms, four Putin terms, however you want to describe them. Because, you know, he was at one point, he was prime minister, but actually running the country from behind the scenes. So, so just to get back to, to the question, why did the futurist present start there? And in that first book, I described a politics that was, uh, well, where media played a much bigger role than violence in control. But there were kind of like factors in it, which I, I thought were, were new. So politicians, not just Putin, who kind of didn't made a show of not caring about the truth, saying the truth doesn't exist. We're not trying to establish the Soviet utopia. We just live in a world where where facts don't matter, uh, where nostalgia had taken over from any coherent idea of the future, where language seemed to be coming apart. So, you know, there was a party in uh, Russia called the Liberal Democratic Party, which was neither liberal nor democratic. It was as if like the old- But they threw great parties. Uh, <laughs> um, that's that's always been a strong point of of, of Moscow generally, uh, but um, <laughs> but but yeah, but exactly, it's that kind of like language seems slippery and out of control, and words didn't seem to mean what they were meant to mean. You know, there were kind of elections, but they weren't really elections. There were debates, but they weren't really debates. It was all very very weird, and politics had become utterly performative. It would become a reality show, and everybody kind of knew it was a reality show. Everyone knew it was a game, and that was almost a way of saying, "Ha, democracy is a joke." Anyway, so all those factors seemed very new to me, and kind of no single ideology, but kind of mixing ideologies and mixing messages all the time. And more as well, kind of this idea of the people and the many being constantly kind of reinvented for every electoral cycle. You know, no, no clear left and right, no clear ideologies, just this kind of like the formation of the people as an electoral concept for every election. And so at the end of the book, I go back to the West going, well, listen, I can't deal with this anymore. I need a world like we have in London and America where there are many, many bad things. But at the end of the day, there's a rational debate. And politicians kind of, when they lie, they at least try to make it sound factual. And we have kind of rules of the game and, and ideas and ideas of the future. And 2016 arrives, the revolutionary year. And suddenly, I see the same kind of pathologies of public opinion, um, of propaganda emerge in Britain and in America. And, and I, I was kind of pinching myself. I was like, oh, my God, this is like Trump is such a figure out of mid-1990s Russian politics. Uh, Brexit was such a campaign that was so similar to what I'd seen in Russia. And just generally, this kind of like the way sort of factuality was just being thrown to the wind in political discourse was something that was sort of an, an echo of what had been happening in Russia in the 90s and early 2000s. And I kind of pinched myself and I, I talked to my Russian friends because a lot of my Russian friends had left Putin's Russia to live in Britain and America. And I'm like, are you getting the, sense, the same sense of deja vu? And they're like, oh yeah, no, no, it's come here now. And the second book, kind of the reason I wanted to write it was to try to understand that. And I don't just focus on Russia. I actually go around the world. Uh, I go to the Philippines and Mexico and China and Ukraine and really messed up countries like America. And I, I try to understand whether we're seeing common patterns everywhere, why it was that a lot of these things emerged first in Russia. And, and I kind of come to a conclusion in the book about why I think that is. I want to hold on Russia for a minute because there's a couple things in the, the, the picture you paint there 
that, that has this great distorted mirror quality. And, and one of them is that you talk in the new book about utopias and the, the, the role they play in politics, the role they play in making facts matter, the role they play in creating something that it's like that's where you're going and that allows you to see where you are and allows you to measure how far you've come. And a, a point you make about Russia is that it's a place where the idea of utopia collapsed earlier. And I, I and I wonder, and you, you you sort of say this, I wonder if that's because you have, like that is where neoliberal comes first, it collapses earliest. Like that's where the end of history is shown to like not work at all. And as such, like it is a place that finds that certain ideals have gone bankrupt before other places begin to even grapple with that possibility. Like what is the role of utopia um, and sort of the like the failure of the liberal utopia in Russia in creating all this? So, yeah, I mean, utopia is kind of a word I don't use in the book simply because it's one that's become so loaded with a lot of negative stuff as well and fantasy. But let's just talk like a pragmatic enlightenment version of the future, because Communism, though deeply perverse, still claimed to be, you know, a scientific con concept, a, an objective version of history. It was deeply rooted in enlightenment logic, and it tried to use evidence to support the fact that it was creating a just and fair society. It wasn't, but it was still using that language, you know. It well, and it knew where it was going. Trying, yeah, yeah, and it tried to, you know, it created evidence to show and created ridiculous think tanks to somehow prove that it was getting there when, you know, everyone could see that it wasn't. Um, and at the end of the day, democratic capitalism was also a deeply enlightenment idea, and we have evidence to show that we're, you know, achieving uh, achieving certain aims. Yeah, so in Russia, sort of communism collapses in 89, I think, as an idea becomes bankrupt in the 70s. And then really in 93, the kind of caricature democratic capitalism that Russians had, really as an other of the communism they had, fails and 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 is a disaster for not for everyone. Some people succeed and do really well, but as a grand social project, it completely collapses. And you have these you know crazy 1990s, this period of flux, and then kind of a neo-authoritarianism emerge. So by 1993, really, Russian spin doctors and propagandists, who I interview a lot in the book, who worked on the Yeltsin campaign and then the early Putin campaigns, are grappling with this new world where factuality is pointless, where left and right don't really make sense anymore. Hold on that for a second. Why is factuality pointless? You have an unusual view on this in the book. Like, what does factuality have to do with anything we're talking about? So, yeah, no, no. So, so factuality in political discourse is necessary. It's a subset of having a rational idea of the future. You need, look, facts are not pleasant, yeah? I mean, facts tell me that I'm kind of overweight, that I haven't been to the gym in a you, week. You look that great. I'm gonna, you look great as well. Thank you. Um, okay, fine. Facts tell us we're going to die at the end of the day. You know, they're not nice things. Why would politicians even, you know, use them? It's much nicer to do crazy fantasies. But they're useful. You know, we don't have a post-truth discourse when we're building a bridge. When people are building a bridge... Even Trump suddenly becomes really rational and evidence-based and really precise. So if you're building something, you need evidence. So both you know, these Enlightenment projects that, that dominated the 20th century, um, they needed evidence as part of their proof that they were getting something. So I think factuality and political discourse is a subset of having an idea of the future. And around 2008 is the obvious moment, but I think there are lots of other small moments that idea of a coherent future in the West collapses as well. The kind of, you can call it the neoliberal project. I think that's kind of a bit of a sloppy term. But but that idea of a kind of you know sort of like free market, uh, free society utopia that was kind of the default mode that we were all in, um, kind of a version of history based on the Economist magazine. You know, we we're kind of all heading there. Uh, it was part of our language. Even Obama is still trying to talk about you know the right side of history, even though. 
he didn't sound convinced by it actually. Although know? I think he means something different in that, and we should come back to that. There's a question between moral um, visions of the future. And I would say sort of economic or managerial. They were together. They were like, no, yeah, like, like human rights. China will have to become market. more yeah. dem- democratic because that it's becoming more. Yeah. Yes. This idea about facts is important in the book. So I want to hold on it for a second. So one, what you are saying is that it is in having an idea of the society you want to build that facts become important because you are building something and you need to be measuring if you're getting further along. I think the, the counter argument to this is that what you're really doing in politics is trying to make people's lives better. And whether you are dealing with democratic politics, or even if you are dealing with authoritarian politics where you're worried about people massing in a public square and like chopping your head off eventually, you're trying to make their lives better. They know. The, the thing that they are trying to build is not some far-off utopia. It is like their, their children having better life than they have, education working, healthcare working, food on the table. And that facts in politics, the thing that is very hard to overwhelm is people's lived experience of their own life. If you diverge in your political story too much from what they are experiencing, you will suffer the consequences. And like that's the way in which facts don't need a utopia because what they need is to somehow describe what is happening to the people that at some level you need to please. So how does the collapse of far-off vision obviate the need for some kind of reality-based discourse in what is happening to the people you are meant to serve, or at least at whose pleasure ultimately you still serve at? So I think there's a bigger sense of story there as well, though. The idea that your kids are going to have a better life than you, which is what's changed in Western society. That's been the big change. The first time we have a generation of people who think their kids are going to be worse off. That's still a... You know, these stories and visions are just very deeply implicit, you know, within the kind of cultural frameworks that we live in. But you're right. I mean, and that's where we still have a kind of a practical discourse. So you have politicians who do kind of little micro things like here's my micro factual thing to solve this micro problem. And I think that's where we have to lead our political discourse. But where that falls down is that that can work as a kind of targeted thing for like segment A. Remember what Hillary Clinton was doing? She was like, for segment A in this little state, I'll do this and I'll do this for this. But if you're doing an election, if you're doing big politics, you do need to then somehow put that all together into a bigger story, which, which Clinton completely failed to do. So how do we take those little, you know, cases of factuality, which can be super practical, but tend to be very, very segmented and targeted, and put that into a much bigger piece of storytelling. I don't think it's going to be top down anymore. I think something's changed fundamentally because media's changed. I think the secret now is going to be to look very, very deeply into those various micro things where factuality is important and see where they connect into something bigger. So I want to come back to that because I think it it speaks to something interesting and in like the and I agree with you, the somewhat sloppy debate between like liberalism and socialism and neoliberalism and when people are talking about ends and when they're talking about means. So I want to put a pin in that. But I, I want to hold in Russia for a minute because what you're saying is that something collapses there and the people who are running politics in Russia begin to see a void that can only be uh, filled by a different kind of storytelling, a different kind of politics. And can you talk a bit about, about what that kind of politics is? Like, what do they figure out potentially earlier than other cultures do about what comes next? So we've talked about already kind of like, you know, throwing factuality to the wind and almost the pleasure of that. But when you talk to the strategists who are kind of much more precise than that. Um, so look, why don't I just tell the story of this this spin doctor who who worked on Yeltsin's and Putin's early campaign? He was like, okay, You can't do left and right anymore. You can't do ideological arguments. You have kind of even the sociological language that you had from the Soviet Union, you know, collective farmers, intelligentsia, doesn't really make sense anymore. But you do have various interest groups. So academics, secret service types, army. And you have to find some way of 
taking these very, very diverse groups and bundling them together. It can't be around an ideology because that would, you know, that's not credible to all of them and doesn't relate to all of them. So he kind of sort of, the way he describes it, he had to sort of, sort of do it around a feeling, essentially. And in 1999, for the Putin election, it was the feeling of what's he called the left behind. That's the language that he uses. Uh, it sounds a bit different in Russia, so I'm translating into English. And everyone who felt they'd lost out from the Yeltsin years, which was a very, very diverse group of people who don't really have anything in common, but you could all unite them around that feeling. And you kind of have to have like a package that you put them into, the idea of what he calls the Putin majority. So this is a version of populism, and he sees this as, as, as a sort of populism, that is basically sees its role as creating an idea of the people for an electoral aim, and then it falls apart again. And you have to, recon, you know, have to reconceive it for the next election, something very liquid. I mean, that is very, very similar to, for example, how the Brexit campaign was run. Um, it wasn't around one ideology. Um, it was, you know, I, I interviewed the guy who ran the digital campaign for it. And, you know, they knew the white nationalists would vote for Brexit, but that's only like 10, 15% of the population max. You have to get a lot more than that. And so, you know, he, there now we have social media, which allows this kind of targeted messaging much, much better. Uh, and the most successful ad, for example, that, that, that they ran uh, on social media for Brexit was around animal rights, getting animal rights people, because that's something people really care about, to convincing them the EU was bad for animal rights. Yeah? And you had this wonderfully spongy phrase, take back control, which can mean everything to anyone, instead of a clear ideology, and, and kind of an idea of sort of the people versus the establishment in the EU that was put together for the referendum and then fell apart again. I mean, we don't actually know why we voted. Uh, I'm a little confused uh, about this this animal rights yeah. idea in the the Brexit campaign because, like, for instance, a, a story going on right now is that Boris Johnson is about to kill 68 million badgers or something to stop some kind of flu from going over to cattle, and you don't really need to do anything with the badgers. It's not clear this works. Point is not to get too deep into the the, the details of that story because I probably even have the numbers wrong. But it's to say 68 that... 68 million badgers. It seems wrong when I say that. It's 68,000 maybe. It's like a badger genocide. It's a lot of badgers. Point is, animal rights people are currently very angry at Boris Johnson. And one of the things I wonder about in the book is you talk to a lot of digital strategists. And for my work, I do too. And digital strategists buy their own bullshit. And it's like, I had this Facebook ad and it went so great. But like when I think of, and it, this could be totally wrong, but when I've read the coverage about Brexit, I've read a lot about lies about the NHS. I've read a lot about immigration. I've read, but I've not seen anything suggesting there was an uprising of animal rights activists that helped turn that vote. And I've also not seen that there's a mapping of labor in that country actually has a very expansive animal rights agenda. Um, and particularly young people tend to be much more pro-animal rights. But that's not who voted for Brexit. So what is, what is the evidence that that actually worked? How are you sure the spin doctors are not spinning you or possibly spinning themselves? Because so, so they got a lot of likes on the, an ad, but it didn't lead to anything. So in the book, I come back to this all the time. And yeah. that's going throughout the history of propaganda, going back to people like Edward Bernays, who kind of coined the term. They're always like pushing themselves. And I come back to this a lot in the book and and you've got to – you're quite right. You have to be very, very careful. Um, and with the animal rights thing, um, so firstly, problem number one, the fact that it's very hard for us to tell is a huge part of the problem. And we can come back to that because I think there is something fundamentally problematic with the way the internet is regulated. We cannot interpret it. Having said that, Facebook have made a lot of the ads uh, available now. We don't know who they were targeted at, but animal rights, there are a lot of animal rights ads there. There was actually stuff in the press. Um, but to a certain extent, yes, you do have to trust them. The way we did ask 
I mean, he's on the record. He said this for a BBC interview I did mm -hmm. with him. So if he's, you know, telling porkies, that's kind of a weird place to tell it in. Oh, I'm not saying he's lying about the ad. I'm saying no. the question of whether or not it worked is oh, like so, another so, jump. Oh, no, no. So, but that's something for the first time you can measure that much more exactly. So there are ways of measuring uh, um, who the ad was targeted at and whether they went and voted. So for the first time, actually, with social media ads, you can follow the trail. With TV, it was very hard to do that. So quite the opposite. I think now they're much more precise about knowing what gets people to vote. When he says successful, by the way, he doesn't mean that was the main motif. He's very precise about successful. He means the correlation of how much of the ad being shown and people voting. Which so so no no I think that is much more precise than it used to be and much more measurable than it used to be and you know obviously in 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 you know we're sitting in the pit of hell here in San Francisco where you know the people you know advertisers can tell if you saw an ad and then went and bought the kind of you know um, you know the funny condom ad I just saw so so I think it's actually much more precise now but that's very interesting about the animal rights thing that's exactly the point I mean. And the NHS thing, this is classic Labour territory. I mean, this is why it worked. Brexit didn't play into classic Tory versus Labour lines. It completely broke those lines. A, that which was very, very interesting. And B, because it was a dark campaign, targeted ads were such a big part of it that were very, you know, we can't actually see exactly who they were targeted ad, at. And still Facebook hasn't shown us all the ads out there. We can't interpret the results, you know. So now, Brexit is meant to be the people's will, but we're not actually quite sure why people voted and what the people's will is. Um, and that's incredibly damaging to democracy because, you know, we can make bad decisions or good decisions, but we have to know why and how we made them. And I do go into that in, in, in the Brexit thing. So is he, is he you know, the, the fact that I can't actually triple check everything he said is such a big part of the problem. So let me ask you something about the spin doctors, the the political campaign consultants. They're a very big part of your book. And, and going back to the one uh, who's working on the Yeltsin campaign, who in some ways helps draft Putin, recognizing like that's the kind of um, candidate that, that Russians are going to connect to. We often think I often think anyway, in politics of like spin doctors, pollsters, political consultants, their staff. They get hired by the politicians. The politicians, they want power. They want to enact an agenda. Parties want power. They want to enact an agenda. In your book, the spin doctors and the pollsters are often – they're the agents. Like they are the, the, the movers of what is going on. What does this spin doctor want? What is his mission? That's such a good question. And I do – it's one I kept on coming back to because I have – Spin doctors small in the Philippines through to very big. I did notice some commonalities. So they are, they do tend to be amoral. So the guy I interviewed at the end, Nigel Oakes, is the guy who created the company that created Cambridge Analytica. He's a man who's dedicated himself and really, I think, in, in quite an obsessive way to finding what is behavioral change. He doesn't want to be a bullshitter. That's his whole thing. He actually wants to find ways to get people to change their behavior. And, and Cambridge Analytica kind of ripped off his ideas and did a sort of, you know, a nonsense version of it that, you know, if we're talking about propagandists who, who believe their own propaganda, they're, they're great that way. He, he, he's, he developed a methodology of actually kind of like anthropological studies of groups, finding out what really motivates them, which takes months and is very expensive and isn't very useful for elections. And he's, he's very open about this. Like, I am amoral, he says. My dream was just finding out what moves people. So all of them, all the ones I talk to, they're all fascinated with, you know, they almost see humankind as like an experimental field that they can play with. So they're all a bit amoral. And I wouldn't say they have kind of like God complexes, but a little bit of that, you know, they, they, they do see all of us as, as you know, things they can move around. Uh, so that's kind of the psychological 
commonality between them. But weirdly, in the book, I don't actually contrast them with politicians. I contrast them with artists. So one of the stories of the book is the story of my father, who's a kind of a poet and broadcaster. I actually see sort of propagandists as like really, really, really bad artists, essentially. And actually, they're in competition with good art, which uh, I'm not saying all artists are moral. They're certainly not. But art is always trying to find new ways of describing reality and making the world alive and real, while propagandists are always trying to get in the way of that and exploit language and and sort of climb in uh, inside reality and spin it. So actually, I see propaganda in attention with art rather than with politicians who you're quite right. They're the real bosses. I think that's a good point to stop for, for a quick break. We will be right back. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off borough.com slash box. A key broad context the book is operating in is this world of information abundance, where all of a sudden you move from a, a position where it's controlling information in terms of its scarcity that gives you power to being able to flood people with information that, that gives you the power. Um, can you talk a bit about like that as a technological enabler of this period? Like, how does that change the, the ways in which these governments and politicians and spin doctors are working? Yeah, that's, that's the key context, isn't it? I mean, and that is kind of a technological issue. It's very interesting. There's a, a very good study by Citizen Lab, who are kind of a group of researchers that look at the internet, from 2010, um, talking about the RUNET, the Russian internet, saying, uh, actually quoting it in a new piece for, for MIT, um, where they write about, we think we're seeing a new type of control of the internet, not based on constricting the internet, but based on shaping and flooding it which is more in line with how the internet works is it's virtually impossible to constrict. I mean, like the Chinese do it, but again, you can get around it. Compared to the 20th century when, you know, 
Soviet people in the Soviet Union had to kind of, you know, it's so hard to imagine that world, you know. They had to sort of like tune into the radio and try to like find like the channel where you could hear the BBC. So that's all that's all changed radically. Um, and it seemed like a great victory for freedom and liberalism. And 1989 that we're celebrating 30 years of now is the victory of, you know, information flowing freely across borders over censorship. That was one of the great things of it. But, you know, look, we're dealing with, A, a pretty cunning enemy who's kind of worked out that, okay, back in the 20th century, we would have done censorship. Now we'll do something else. Um, and as you, as, as you say, you know, you flood the zone with so much nonsense that people can't tell truth from fiction anymore. Instead of using the secret police to kind of break into people's houses and take away their, their copies of the Gulag Archipelago, you create cyber militias and online mobs who, you know, attack people, intimidate them fence them off from the rest of society. But then when kind of opposition journalists or critics sort of turn around and say, hold on, this is the government doing this, the government says, prove it. Nothing to do with us. These are just patriotic citizens or patriotic businessmen doing this. And you guys always wanted freedom of expression. Well, here you have freedom of expression. Um, there's a very funny moment, which isn't in the book, but was brought to my attention later when the Russian troll farm, I think, threatened to sue Facebook for, you know, for, for taking down their materials. What about our freedom of expression? And, you know, it's a clever argument. You know, we, we kind of laugh because it's so obviously trolling, <laughs> but it's actually a very, very good argument. Because, look, if you look at human rights legislation, there is no concept such as disinformation. You know, freedom of expression is also the right to lie. So that they have a point actually in law. And we've been really struggling with any kind of democratic policy response to this. So that's changed. Um, you know, there's been an ideological shift, which isn't just connected to this, but I think is, is, is related, which is a move away from totalitarian control over ideology, like one TV channel, one truth, one socialist utopia, to playing on polarization. So even Putin doesn't try to do full control. He tries to like, you know, polarize society domestically. And obviously, that was the aim of the Russian campaign here. So you play on polarization instead of trying to have control because you can't have full control of the internet. But the internet is beautifully designed uh, to strengthen polarization. Oh, no, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous well, operation. I, I want to ask you some questions about I that. I would love Why to then? have you ask me some no, questions no, that, about that. that. We'll, so, we'll go so, back and forth. So you, you press on polarization. And I think, again, I don't, I think conspiracy works very well in this world because, you know, the sense of everything's uncertain. You don't know who's behind various information campaigns. And, you know, whether it's Trump or Putin, they're constantly using conspiracy as a way to sort of make sense of this chaotic world. And conspiracy is very, very not good for sort of democratic discourse, which relies on a lot of trust. So you, you instead of sort of having kind of like forcing people to believe something. The internet's very good for making people doubt everything. And in this kind of murky world, you need a, a strong leader. I, I really want to zoom in on this point because like this seems to me to be a key inside of both this book and the and the, the previous one. But I think the like the naive theory of propaganda, of disinformation, of troll farms, of a lot of the kind of political strategies you're laying out is that what they're trying to do is convince you of something untrue. And then somebody like me comes in and says, yeah, but they don't really work. Like Cambridge Analytica doesn't work. Um, it, it is not a functional way of changing votes um, as far as I can tell. The point you make in the book a couple of times is that the strategy is actually not to convince you of something untrue. It is to convince you that nothing is true. It is to convince you that you can't trust anyone, that anything can be a disinformation campaign, that it just – even if it isn't all a disinformation campaign, that you can't possibly know. And there are the um, – there are villainous versions of this and there's just like the, the kind of benign but weird versions where like you – 
get a resurgence of flat earth societies on YouTube. That's not just, benign. <laughs> That's yeah, like... but, but that because you could look at that and be like, That's just weird. But yeah. it it's working off of the same just total collapse in trust in in objective realities. And and you know, not trusting politicians. They might have some reasons for that. Yeah, that's but, fine. But we see lack of trust in the medical profession. That was always the bastion, you know. Yep. You don't trust politicians, but everybody trusted the doctor. And now the medical profession is being put under scrutiny. And that is, I mean, that's the consequences of that are catastrophic. But the thing, thing I want to zoom in on is in Russia, you say that's a strategy. Here, it sometimes feels like, I'm not saying it's never a strategy, but it often feels like an outcome. But you're saying that the way in which Russia is like the leader on this, and, and it's true in some of the other countries you look at too, is that they recognize that that is a necessary precursor. You do it intentionally. And then it helps you kind of understand like Donald Trump and fake news, for instance, where it's, again, it's an intentional breakdown. He's not really offering... I do not think Donald Trump in general cares that much if you believe him. He cares if you disbelieve the people who are attacking him. Exactly. So I think in Russia, it's clearly a strategy. It's a strategy brought out... Look, propagandists look at the world we live in in that sense, they are a lot like artists, and they try to find ways of kind of like working in that world. They don't create the world. They kind of, you know, they work in a cultural, con you know, context in a media context, and they see what works. So, so doubt as a strategy did exist in the U.S., but just in very targeted ways. So, the tobacco industry did this very, very consciously. Nope. They even have a word for it. I've forgotten. So, so definitely did exist here. The energy and industry. Another about great example. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so no, no, without a doubt, it existed as a strategy. It always has. But now it's become the dominant political mode. Whether Trump does this instinctively, he seems to be an instinctive kind of guy, but he does it over and over and over again. I mean, in those interviews where he goes about kind of like, you know, about Russia's activity in Ukraine, well, you don't know. Different people say different things. You just don't know. And look at the, you know, look at the TV shows he goes on. I mean, he's full of this rhetoric. And it is, look, it's a very useful strategy, just in a short-term way as well, because if, look, if there's no objective reality, then it's very hard to argue with a politician. You're like, we've caught you out with the truth. I mean, that was always the great credo of what of journalism. We will hold power accountable with the truth, you know, and the brave journalist goes, ha ha, here's the evidence. And if the politician goes, I don't care, I yeah. don't care what the truth is, then suddenly you're like, oh, okay, what do I do now? So it's also a good short-term strategy. That is the media's relationship with Donald Trump, like <laughs> yes. in a nutshell right there. We caught right? you. And he's like, okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're lying. <laughs> like, I don't care. Nobody who follows me cares. What Donald Trump, I think, has understood is that the way that that strategy worked, we thought it was working off of some objective constraint that like when we caught a politician lying, what was happening was like the public would turn on them. And like that was where the power came from. And it turned out that it was a politician's own shame that was creating the constraint. It was that the politician saying, ooh, like, yeah, that's bad. I'm sorry. And then once the politician and the media have agreed the politician has done something wrong, then the media – then the public is like, well, that seems bad. If the politician has no shame, if they never say I'm sorry, if they don't give a shit – it turns out there's no power in that strategy really at all. Like it's then just a pure strategy of polarization. You can convince the people who already don't like that person that this is a problem. But for the people who do, they don't care. Maybe they even agree it's a problem, but it's like, well, it's lying in service of a broader goal. And like that, that it turned out that we were so operating in terms of the norms and shame that individual players had that we could act upon. And then that like the congruence of our of our catching them and their shame created an objective reality the public could work with. If you take out their shame, the objective reality shatters. Yeah, hypocrisy. The consensus reality shatters. Hypocrisy is, is a was a good line. thing, it turned out. And this is something that 
you know, people have been talking about in Russia for, for 20 years. So, you know, the communists still put up this facade. You know, it was, it, was, it was deeply hypocritical to the point where it became untenable, but there was a facade. You weren't meant to be corrupt. You were trying to establish utopia. And then in the 90s and 2000s, yeah, I'm corrupt. What's the big deal? Yeah, I'm lying. What's the big deal? And with that comes a certain pleasure because if, you know, that means I can be shameless too. That means I don't need to care about the facts, which is, I think there's a kind of a libidinal release in that. Maybe libidinal is the wrong word. You know what I mean? That kind of like kind of, a kind of a punk rock freedom that yeah. comes with that. So I think there's almost like a delight in it. I think that's part of the enjoyment of a Putin or a Trump. Like, oh my God, they don't care about the rules. Wow. You know, I think I think that's the pleasure of them. And I think we miss that pleasure sometimes. We miss the fact that it's pleasurable what they're doing. I mean, there's a I haven't thought about it exactly this way. But if you think about the era in American television directly preceding this, it's the era of the antihero, right? It's the era of taking a certain pleasure in what Tony Soprano is doing, in what um, uh, Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad. What's the guy's name on that? I'm just blanking out. Uh, White. White. Um, that's a really sharp comment. The, You're good, Clezra. That's really you. sharp. The, That's really came sharp. Came up with that myself. But that there, like, we had been going through this period of not watching heroes, but taking pleasure in like the amoral, like tromping over everything of the anti-heroes. And Booty G, and then, just like the Frank Capra guy coming back. What we need is a bit of it's a wonderful life again in our society. Right. But but yeah, or, or like I think you could even say Bernie Sanders operates like a very strict moral hero in his own way, right? Like the the world is black and white, like there is good and bad, he is gonna fight. But Trump is a purely he's a pure anti-hero, right? He's a pure like, ooh, there's something, there does just seem something flat out fun and exciting about like taking a shit on gold toilets and like hanging out with supermodels and telling anybody who doesn't like you to screw off. Like that is like, and there's something, there's some release and there. And Putin has been playing that for a long time. So one of the things that Putin does in the early 2000s, so in Russia, the hero of the 90s became the gangsters. They were the only ones who could survive and flourish and they became social role models. And Putin imitates the walk of a gangster, the talk of a gangster. People call him a, like a like a gangster politician. He's not. He's a he's a he's a lawyer by training who was, you know, whatever you think about his education, he 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 you know he spoke many languages and worked in one of the best intelligence services in the world. I mean, he's actually quite an educated guy from a poor family, but quite well educated. And he's aping the gangsters because he knows that's what's successful. Yeah, that's. You have a great line in the in the other book, um, the, the earlier book, about how for a long time politicians denied allegations they were mobsters, and then at a certain point they began playing mobsters on TV. Yes, exactly. But I mean, let's go back for one second to Donald Trump and polarization. So this is what I can't work out. So I worked in reality shows. So before I became the serious quasi-academic think tank media studies person, I did terrible things like make reality shows. And look, if you look at the early reality shows, so the early Big Brother in Britain and the early Apprentice, people collaborated. It was a disaster. People were nice to each other and worked together because that's what people actually do normally. And as producers, our aim was to create conflict. We'd bring in, in castings, people who we knew would be combustible, and we kind of generate conflict. Uh, in Russia, some of the reality shows were just scripted. To be honest, not the ones I worked on, of course, but but a lot were. Uh, in Britain, we try to sort of like is uh, nothing produce. sacred. Yes, I know. It's <laughs> a scripted, well, in America, it's scripted anyway. But anyway, so obviously Donald Trump is a huge part of that, and it's as if Mark Zuckerberg and these various paragons of awfulness, uh, who now kind of like who've designed the internet, grew up watching these reality shows with this kind of polarization as a norm and ended up designing an internet, which is like one massive reality show, which rewards narcissism, performance, polarization, clashing things together. Can't we just design a different internet which rewards a different kind of behavior? Because this is not natural behavior. You know, this is a very, very kind of like manipulated 
way of of, of pushing humans against each other? Ooh, that's an interesting question. So um, let me hold on the reality show piece of it before mm. the internet piece of it, because one of my big arguments about Trump in the run-up to 2016 was that it was fake that his that he was a businessman, right? That his he would always like there was this line that he had opted into in the Republican Party for a very long time, which is like government needs to be run like a business. And, and Donald Trump is a businessman. But Donald Trump was a he was a reality television star. His relevant um skills came from reality television. And my colleague Emily Vanderwerf had a great piece back in the day about Richard Hatch, who was like the early survivor breakout star as a model, as a sort of a model for Donald Trump. Like Donald Trump's almost his credo really was like, I'm not here to make friends. You know, like he'll be in the Republican debates slagging off John McCain, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Marco Rubio, like everybody, right? There was no, like he was not here to make friends. He didn't care. Shamelessness was the brand as it is on reality television, right? To succeed on reality television, what you need to be is shameless. And, and, and an asshole. And an asshole. And Donald Trump had succeeded in reality television. What he was was shameless. The reason I'm not sure I buy this as a internet dimension exactly is that because reality television in many ways predates the kind of internet we're talking about, the social media internet, the Facebook internet, there's something about a, just a more mediated world, right? A world that is mediated through media where performance becomes the thing, um, where everybody can see performing and we're all performing. And there is something then in being able to purely inhabit the role of the performer to completely lose that sense of yourself in the backdrop that I think becomes relevant in ways that I don't feel that I can fully articulate, but I was having this, uh, I did this podcast a couple weeks back with Gio Tolentino, um, which if folks haven't listened to, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about a lot, it plays off this one in an interesting way. But but she talks about this idea of, um, uh, I think it's Irving Hoffman who used to say that like it's not the case that all the world is a stage, but precisely where it isn't a stage is hard to tell. And that seems true in not just a lot of our politics, but a lot of our lives uh, now. As you lose the sense of a backstage, a sense of like there is some you that you are trying to preserve, it does seem to me that we are building spaces, both be they social media or games like politics, that select for the people who can fully inhabit the performer and who don't have the restraint of a self in the background that they are trying to preserve. That's Donald Trump. So – even when television appears, there's this wonderful book that we all should reread every, once a year called The Image um, by, I've forgotten the writer, who's like an American sort of philosopher-ish kind of person, Tubin, I think, I can't remember, which completely predicts all this. He's, he's talking about in a, in a politics and era dominated by the image rather than by language and words, everything will become about performance and the sense will fall, fall away. And that is that does seem to be, that has happened. So there is a logic to performance, which which um, will always sort of make spectacle more important than sense. However, as someone who worked in TV, as someone who created reality shows, there's still a lot of editorial and directorial decisions you can make. And I'm pretty sure you could do reality shows in a different way that was much more constructive and sane. And actually, there are really good reality shows as well, which try to do something positive. There's a very good one in Britain, which put together people from different racial divides and try to get them to work together. We could have an internet which does incentivize other forms of behavior. So I don't want to be that kind of like, you know, I, I completely understand what, you, what you're saying about the performative nature of the world that we live in. But I'm, why can't performance 
why can't other types of performance be rewarded rather than this type of performance? Oh, so this I agree with. So this is something where in the past couple of years, I have um, developed a critique of the media and myself and that has become much more central to my understanding of politics, which is we are the ones more than anyone else who are deciding what kind of performance matters. Um, we made the choice that Donald Trump could squeeze out coverage of everyone else by being more outrageous by lying more flagrantly and by picking more conflict with everyone else. If Donald Trump could not absorb all coverage by um, acting the way he does, if instead the idea was you get coverage for acting um, like a president, like a president, right, or you get coverage because the plan you just released is really interesting, that has a, a different kind of power. Now, the, the the place where this, I think, interacts in a very difficult way with social media, with the kind of internet you're talking about, is it is true that human beings are on some level a little bit moth to the flame, to the outrageous, to the confrontational. So it is true that when Donald Trump, you know, attacks Gold Star families or something, that is going to get somewhat more traffic. And the media is much more in touch with and dependent on the whims of the audience now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. So on the one hand, I think we make some choices about what we reward in Donald Trump or just in politicians more generally. I mean, even look at the Democratic debates, which are structured in a way where you get more time if you attack other people on the stage. If you just make a good point, you don't get any more time. But if you like make a point that is attacking Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders then gets 45 seconds to respond. Then if he attacks you back, you get back in. And so there's a huge underlying structure to get everybody to attack each other. Um, we can, to some degree, make different choices. But on the other hand, in a world of social media, like you can look at Twitter any day of the week. And what is dominating there is outrage, is confrontation, is things that piss people off and particular things that offend their identity and their sense of group. And in that world where those choices are being made, yes, you could turn the dials on the um, on the underlying social media platforms. But the problem is, like, if everybody is ultimately dependent on generating audience and is not, it is not against the law to generate audience in this way, then somebody's going to do it in this way, and everybody else is going to feel the competitive pressure to follow. So I have this little think tank at the London School of Economics where. We did a bunch of studies around this. We worked with, initially with Corriere della Sera, which is like their newspaper of record, and how they covered migration, which was a big topic in Italy. But here's the paradox. Even as migration has fallen by 80% over the last two years, because the refugee crisis has, has quietened, the amount of stories about it has been going up. And it's driven by one man, by the guy who's, for, for several years, was the minister of the interior, and by far and away, the most important man in Italian politics, a guy called Salvini, who's a proto-Trump. Again, a guy who really gets social media, whose own Facebook has his own Facebook channel, which is often more popular than the media, like Trump uses Twitter, who creates scandal, constantly self-scandalizes, says provocative things that he knows people will self-scandalizes is a great term, yeah. by the way. That not I'm mine, not mine, not mine. It's some 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 Austrian academic Whoever came up with it. Whoever it is, like, I have needed that yeah. term yeah. for years. That's exactly what they do, which is what you do in a reality show. You, you create self-scandalize. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Free podcast here, people. Okay. <laughs> it's not my term. I'm, I'm completely, I can't remember which academic said it, but but it has been said before. And the trap that Corriere della Sera is in is that they know they don't want to cover Salvini, but they know that when they cover him, it gets the most likes, shares, the most comments, and the most ad, because they're dependent on the ad tech, because the ad tech rewards, as you say, scandal and polarization. So we try to explore the possibility of other metrics. Could they measure whether a piece of content that helps inspire trust in the media, yeah, helps to build a more constructive conversation. So you can develop other metrics, yeah. It's tough, but you can do it. 
However, Corriere were like fascinated by all our work with them. They're like, how interesting. But like, Peter, we live in a world driven by ad tech. We're barely surviving and we're a major newspaper. We have to follow the likes and the shares and the clicks and that's Salvini. And so we're kind of, you know, it's almost as if like we're locked in this cycle now where, you know, the media, social media has been designed in a certain way. That defines how the ad tech works. That defines how newspapers cover things. And that kind of almost summons up a certain type of, of politician and certainly a certain type of political strategy. Look, this was already happening on TV. You know, I, I don't think TV should be seen as, as in complete contrast to the internet. But kind of no, the internet it's contiguous has, with it. Yeah, yeah, no, but it's kind of, I think maybe TV helped create the way we design the internet. But the internet has just sent this into kind of like, you know, a vicious spiral. Look, commercialization and media, and this is, a, a, you know, a dangerous thing to say in America, have always had a very uneasy relationship. That's why in Britain you have the BBC, which doesn't have commercial constraints and therefore can do balance and fairness. Yeah, and look wisdom. how Great Britain is doing right now. Well, we can come back to, to what changed <laughs> there. Britain would be a lot worse if it wasn't there. Uh, imagine what it would be like if it wasn't there. But um, but something's changed in the British media landscape. So social media has become so important that the BBC is still sort of playing in broadcast mode when a lot of the media has moved into interaction, which the BBC hasn't mastered. But it was a good model for a long time. But the point I'm trying to make is, is different, is that, that, that you, we might need spaces uh, for our public discourse, which are not dominated by commercialization. Yeah. Does that make me a socialist in America? I don't know. This seems a non-controversial I don't thing to say. I don't, I don't actually think it's a controversial thing to say. I think people actually get this. Um, and by the way, we used to have a lot of them. I don't think we think about this uh, that clearly, but America had a much thicker mediating layer of civil society for a long time. I mean, you could talk about this in the Robert Putnam bowling alone dimension, but I mean, religious spaces, churches were a key space of this. Unions were a key space of this. Um, civic groups were a key space of this. It's not the only place politics happened, but it was a thicker space where politics happened. And I don't think people recognize the degree to which social media is actually the inheritor of a lot of those particular spaces. Um, that is where you talk to people, where you see the people you know, um, but it works off of these algorithmic incentives that the, the changes their nature. All right, let, let, let's take a quick break right here and then we'll be right back. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments, a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? 
State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I want to bring in something you have. Uh, it's a it's a quote from someone who's anonymous in the book, but it's a quote that I just love, which is that all politics is now about creating identity. I'll sometimes say, and it's a big part of my book, that all politics is in some way or another identity politics, which is to say it's always shaped by your identities. But all politics is now about creating identity both seems correct to me and a very important twist on that idea. So, yeah, the reason I don't name the guy, it's he's a, he's a Mexican spin doctor, which is kind of a journalistic thing I have, actually. It's like if it wasn't – if somebody's talking to me off the record, I don't name them, but but – he, yes, I, I understand yeah, how no, that that's works. Why, that's why it's, it's, it's not that it's like, but listen, but also it's not that important because he's actually quoting, what's very interesting is he works for right-wing uh, politicians. He's actually quoting great left-wing theories, um, Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Laclau, who already in, I think in the 90s, early 2000s, come out with a book which is now incredibly important uh, and really, really sort of a, a core text called Populism as Strategy. And they're left-wingers who are thinking, okay, class doesn't work anymore. The com communist version of history doesn't really work anymore. How do we create new types of coalitions around the idea of inequality? And, and what they're basically saying is because the old identities have fallen apart, the old kind of class identities have fallen apart, the old sociological determinants have fallen apart, you have to create a notion of the people during an election. So again, very similar to what the guy in Russia was telling me. These are people coming from very different places, all arriving at this idea that if the old stories have gone, if the old sort of class systems have gone, then how do we bundle very, very disparate interest groups into one notion of the people? And, you know, it always needs a non-people. There's always a nastiness to it, I think. And I think that's populism as strategy always has, I think it can be very, very destructive. And I think that might be built in. It's an idea I'm very uncomfortable with, but it's effective. And it can be used by the left, the right, the post-left, the post-right. Actually, in the book, I also talk about Islamists because I talk about uh, um, Hizbut Tahir, who also had a very, very similar approach to creating the Ummah. You know, you know, the idea of a Muslim people has to be created. You take very different interest groups and unite them around an idea of the Muslim people. So that's what I talk about, mean by identity politics. So after ideology, you get this kind of creation of a political identity for electoral aims. So that's not the way identity politics is usually used in the US, where I think we're talking about something very specific in US -y and kind of tiresome. And, and <laughs> American culture wars are just like, oh my God, this is so no, boring. No, but, but I do think yeah. that there is something very important. So part of what I'm doing and like the project in my book is having a better theorized understanding of how identity works in politics, right? Of which identity politics, what we mean in, the, in America, we're just talking about a couple identities that work in a very specific way in politics, like we've like narrowed a very important force. It's like we've decided to talk about gravity, but only in the way it affects buildings. It's a it's a weird thing. But the thing that you talk about in that chapter is that we now have this capacity to turn interests into identities. We now like the 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 internet works as a tremendous machine for turning things into identity. Right? You start with saying like on your Facebook page, hey, like I like gardening. And then soon enough, you're in like a community of gardeners. And then soon enough, like the stuff coming up in the community of gardeners is like people cutting down the trees that, you know, you need to – this is not actually a great example I've come up with. But the capacity to turn anything into identity – in the book actually, to, to preview a little of my own work, is that I actually talk with Jonah Preddy who founded BuzzFeed. And we talk about how 
one of BuzzFeed's earliest innovations, because it was initially a laboratory to see what would go viral online, is that identity goes viral online. And so the early BuzzFeed hits are things like 17 things that only the children of Asian immigrants will understand, 27 things you'll only, you'll only understand if you're left-handed, 32 things you'll only understand if you're an Eagle Scout. And you wouldn't think about these things as actually being identities, but what they're doing is turning them into identities, right? Eagle Scout is just like, you're just an Eagle Scout. Children of Asian immigrants, like, well, that's just how you grew up. But if you begin saying, here are the things only you know, that's the us. And everybody outside of that is the them. And you're sharing it to people to be like, this is my us. Like, are you here too? What you're doing is turning an interest or an experience or someone into an identity. So we're creating, we're taking a very powerful psychological force in the human um, experience and supercharging it. We now like, we used to have a couple of identities, some identities, and now we have more than we can possibly create. We merge some of them with each other and we're constantly on the lookout um, and sharing things that are either strengthening those identities or um, a threat to those identities, which strengthens them in a different way. And like that idea that all politics is now about creating identity, when I look at political advertising, when I look at what politicians are doing, I see a lot of that, right? It's all about triggering certain identities. And so much of politics now is just a war over which identities are going to be activated when you go into the ballot booth. But, the th but I mean, two things there that come to mind. All those things, are when you come to electoral politics, all those things are way too fractured to build a whole campaign around. So you're going to have to find a way of uniting these very, very disparate identities into something fuzzy enough uh, that they can all vote in the same way. It's the opposite of centrism, which is bringing people together. I think here you're telling just different stories to different people saying, you know, it's Trump saying, I'll be great for left-handers and, you know, I'll also be great for right-handers. You know, the aim is for them to never meet because they But not in polarization. Other. Huh? Not in an era of polarization, right? Like what you can say there, Trump is not – I think an important thing about Donald Trump is he's not saying I'll be great for left-handers and I'll be great for right-handers. A particular thing about him is he's only saying I'll be great for right-handers. Like Donald Trump does not go around in a serious way trying to be all things to all people. He occasionally will just like spout off of something. But when you really look, like he says like I'm going to build a wall. Like just like flatly, there's going to be a wall on the border. I'm going to offend immigrants over and over and over and over and over again. Like in a world like the Republican Party in 2012 after that loss was trying to become a more pro-immigrant party. It was trying to be all things to all people. It was trying to be a party for white people who wanted their country to be like it was and also a party that could welcome Hispanics. And Donald Trump comes in and says, no, like we are going to be a party that just keeps the country the way it was. You have to merge identities. Um, so you have to be all things to some group of people, right? It's amazing that Donald Trump is able to be what he is to evangelicals, given how he personally lives. And, and, but he and, does that by and, and, linking and, the evangelical identity to the Republican identity to the white identity, which has been happening before him, and just saying, I will defend you. And he does mean it. And no, you're quite right. So, so you have to get enough of them to be the people. Yes. And then you have to have the non-people. The thing that unites these yes. very disparate things, these very different listicles, is then you need an enemy. So in Brexit, it was the EU, but which was meant to be an enemy in very, very different ways to different people. So for someone, it's uh, uh, the EU sins against animal rights. For others, the EU causes migration. Um, and again, yes, Donald Trump. It's, it wasn't just. It wasn't just. It was immigrants and and the blob, the mainstream. You know, yeah, whatever. the blob, the elites. Yeah, exactly. So, so and those kind of a long time thing in Republican Party politics. And by the way, I don't want to say it's only Donald Trump, right? Like you can look at this from the other direction, and certainly there is no doubt the Democratic Party works off of uniting a lot of seemingly disparate identities into a, a, a more cohesive political identity. Sometimes it does that through policy transactionalism, right? You're all going to benefit from universal health care, but 
increasingly it does so by like first there's like the effort to create class identities, right? The 99% versus the one, workers versus capital. Um, you can look at that in the more uh, distilled Bernie Sanders form, but that was what Barack Obama did to Mitt Romney in 2012. But there's also the there's fundamentally like a diversity identity versus a like a revanchist white identity. The Democratic coalition at this point is very interested in stories, interested in telling stories about a rising, like knitted together, like diverse browner America and the people who want to stop that from happening. The outgroup is not necessarily a particular race because there are a lot of white people in the Democratic Party, but it is an idea that you do not like the way the country is changing. It makes all the subtext text for Barack Obama's line to be hope and change and Donald Trump's to be make America great again. It takes everything that American politics is about and condenses it so perfectly into those two identities fundamentally. But the whole Obama thing, look, there's things which are America specific, which I don't claim to know about in the book. But in the book, actually, I'm doing something else. I'm looking to see what yeah. are the things in America that I see in the Philippines, and et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of the things you're talking about are very America specific. And, you know, I'm a sort of British, European, Russian, whatever. So, so I don't claim to have expertise. But if you're talking about the kind of centrism that Tony Blair did, that Clinton did, that Obama did, it's very much a message of, of healing at the end of the day. Sure, yeah. there are bad, you know, there, there are forces you're opposing. Actually, often to do with the past and the future. That's often the narrative. That's yep. the past where the future. So there's still a future narrative. And there's also a genuine effort in centrism to get different groups and find their consensus position and bring them together. With the kind of polarizing populism, you don't even have to put people in a room together. You know, you're not trying to get the evangelicals and the Nazis in one room together. You don't need to. You can just tell them very, very different things and appeal to them in, in very different ways. So, so I think there's a, there's a key difference there. You're not trying to generate kind of like a common debate and consensus as your as your philosophy. So I, I do think there's a difference. Like politics is always oppositional and agonistic, and it should be. That's absolutely fine. But definitely the kind of centrism we saw with Blair, Obama, Clinton was there was an idea of progress. There was an idea of where we're heading. It was nostalgist. It did have a clear idea of the future. And it did, you know, it did partake in rational discourse. You know, Blair, Obama, these are all wonderfully brilliant debaters who try to prove their point. They want to win you over. As you say, Trump isn't trying to win you over. But I love the point you made, by the way, about how the current debates want to generate conflict because you get more time if you attack someone. That is brilliant. That is because just before I came in here, I said I needed a last paragraph in my in an article I'm writing about what needs to change in journalism in the run-up to the next election. And I will quote you. That is brilliant. So one thing I want to go back on here, because I certainly do not want to equate the nature of the politics that Obama and Trump or Clinton and Trump do. But, but I do want to note that I think one of the problems of the way we talk about identity and creating identity is that, and, and I think it's a little bit implicit in what you're saying, we kind of want to say it's always bad. Like, I think there's some idea that identity is somehow a bad thing, but because we all have it, it just works and can work in a hundred different ways. Like American or British or European are an identity. You actually talk at the end of the book about how European is an identity that you see as healthy because one of the things it allows you to do is wear other identities more lightly. Like by being kind of pan-European allows you to like take on and take off the identity of Italian at certain moments. And like those two things are a conflict between a nationalist identity and a kind of pan-European identity, or at least it can be made to be one. But they're both working off of similar psychological forces. They appeal to different people. We have different psychologies. We have different needs, interests, like different experiences. I don't see identity as a... Uh, 
like a particular kind of political strategy. I see it as like a dimension upon which politics happens in the same way that like politics occurs in kind of a dimension of material interest. That is one thing that we are grabbing in from people in politics, like saying this will help you instead of hurting you. It does so in identity. It does so in ideology. And we just miss it, I think, because we're so used to like only seeing identity in the things we don't like, but it's there in the things we do like too. And so the thing that I found really striking about that idea that all politics are now about creating identity is that the thing that we have developed, you spent a lot of time in the book on micro-targeting tools. The thing we've developed a much more sophisticated capability to do is find people's identities and then try to link them to something larger. So, I mean, in all the campaigns you're saying, there is a certain set of campaigns that happen maybe more in Russia than here uh, that are that are truly fuzzy. They truly don't mean much um, if you put it all together. If you tried to cohere them all into a single message, you wouldn't be able to find it. But a lot of campaigns are about trying to say, your identity is actually linked to this identity. You guys are dealing with the same problem here and you should come together, right? That's a kind of fusionism of identity that has always operated in politics, but we're getting better and better at because we can see more clearly what identities people need linked together and which ones they already are opting into that you could, you know, activate to, to to try to show them the connection between one and another. And let, let me give you a precise example of that, one that I would like to see happen. So at the moment, we're seeing actually amazing protest movements across the world. The one in Hong Kong is stunning. It, fe- fears, it fills me with fear and trembling because I don't know how it'll end and I fear for the protesters. But it's been incredible. In Moscow, the capital of cynicism and conspiracy thinking, a really targeted, well-thought-through bunch of protests have led to kind of some tactical election gains uh, in the local city elections. Tiny victory, but for Russia, that's a big deal. In Belisi, in Belgrade. But the difference between this wave of protests to the Arab Spring, the color revolutions in 1989 was then they felt like the part of a much larger story. They felt like a story of, you know, the inevitability of the victory of liberal democracy. And they all felt like one thing, you know, Latin America, in, in Eastern Europe, now they don't. But yet people still go out there, even though they don't have this immediate big global story, they're still going out there and fighting for something. What I would like to do is to really dive deep into these protest movements through a mixture of, you know, qualitative research interviews, but also actually looking at, at, at the data and what people are writing about and how they're writing about. And I think if we look very deeply, we'll actually find what these different movements have in common. You know, the language of kind of human rights and ever greater freedom seems old and dead and misused and kind of worn out. But I bet we could find the things that do unite them and we could start reviving, you know, the greater narrative of democracy by going very, very deep and understanding what's driving people. There's a positive way to embrace all this technology. So far, the propagandists, as in like the manipulators and and the advertisers have you know, jumped onto the new micro-targeting technology. Democratic forces haven't yet, but I think we have to. We have to play in this field and we have to find a way of doing it ethically and in a transparent way. But we can't kind of be still dreaming of the old model of talking to people um, when there's a new one out there. And we've been very slow. Civil society groups are rubbish at this. You talk to human rights groups, which I often do. And I'm like, well, are you, you, know, are you using these tools? They're like, what? No. Uh, and, and they have to start. Something this lets me come back to, which I I had held back for later earlier in the podcast, is this idea of having end states 
and the importance of that in actually mobilizing people. So we were, we were talking about the difference between arguing through means and arguing through ends. Something I often see in the arguments between people who get framed as neoliberals and people who see themselves as socialists or democratic socialists, and you see this on the right too, between the people who kind of are framed as more accommodationists and the people who are like trying to create integralist Catholic superstates, is it seems to me that the weakest place to be in right now is a kind of politics which is about means and does not have a clearly defined end state. Like liberals and part of the ones who often get called, called neoliberals, which includes me, uh, you, the critique that I see happen is it it's like a politics somehow divorced from what it is trying to do, that it is like a technocratic, pragmatic politics. And it often doesn't feel the way from the inside, right? You're saying, well, no, like I like you're trying to make people's lives better. And like this policy would do that better than that policy. So you choose this policy and like in an incremental way, you continue improving society. But there is in the world we are living in, in the way the media works and the way the social media works, just as identity is very strong, vision is very powerful. And you often have a kind of collision between people who are trying to argue what they're doing in terms of means, like this is a better way to move forward right now versus people who are a little bit less interested in means and are arguing about the, the place you're going to go 50 years from now, 100 years from now. I mean, I was talking to, to Nathan Robinson, who runs Current Affairs, and he was saying that the way he sees his work is he's trying to make arguments for the world of a thousand years from now. And like that's just like not even a way that I tend to think. Just I don't think you can make predictions like that. But in some ways, I admire the way of thinking that that you could or, or, or the approach that you could. And so there is something in the world that you are describing in Russia um, and in some of these other countries about what happens and about the danger of having your vision of the end state collapse. And it does seem to me that as sloppy as a of a conversation as it is, the real thing that happened to liberalism and neoliberalism um, over the past kind of 20 years that sometimes people inside it don't always see is that its vision of where it is going, at least to the broader world, collapsed. It became just a kind of like a technocratic strategy of marginal improvement, which fine, maybe that's better than the alternative. Um, and maybe it's not even better than the alternative, depending on how whether or not you actually believe those things are improvements. But what it lost was a was a clearly articulated vision of the end state. And like you cannot operate in politics right now without that. And also, I think that's deeply tied to the end of the Cold War. Because if you go back yes. to the history of neoliberalism, um, before it became kind of about, you know, the San Francisco downtown, it was actually led by people who saw it as a way of fighting dictatorship. And one of the ideas of having transnational capital was to fight against nationalism. Um, you know, when 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 right-wing nationalists today say neoliberalism is a tool against the nation, they're, they're completely right. Uh, that's exactly what it was. If you go back to the colloquium of Walter Lippmann in the 30s, it's that's exactly that. It's a way to fight fascism and, and later, you know, the other totalitarian dictatorships. So when the totalitarians collapse, kind of neoliberalism loses its moral mission and its, as you say, its vision of an end state. It was completely dependent on the enemy that it was trying to fight. And now we should see what the enemy, and by the enemy, I mean something very simple. I mean people whose aim is to take away the rights of others and who create identity, not in a benign way, but an identity that's always based around hatred and humiliating someone else and an in-out identity, what, what one might refer to as othering. So there were, you know, those were kind of like the psychological impulses behind totalitarian regimes. Now they've put on a different mask. It's probably the same kind of people who are doing this. Uh, and the we, authoritarian impulse. Well, listen, look, I don't want to get into sort of like, I mean, there's a lot of sociology about yes. this. There's kind of, a, you know, the psychological state that, 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 that encourages this. Um, but they're clearly in the ascendancy again, but they're using a completely different set of tactics. 
And clearly, neoliberalism is not the way to fight them. You know, they've, they've long inhabited and pulled on the clothes of neoliberalism. And, you know, Putin's, Putin and Xi Jinping are perfectly neoliberal when they need to be. So clearly, neoliberalism is not the way to fight these guys. Um, so, well, at least so what the is? thing that it used to be. I, well, I, well, I just want, want to know because yeah. something I'm really fascinated by is like there's actually an see, effort I see right now. I've got me using it. I never use the term neoliberalism because I find it so loaded and it's become this ridiculous I've, term. I, I've, I've I, become, I, yeah. I, I agree with everything you were saying there, but also I've just I think it is important because it has become a sort of dominant term to try to find your way to what it is going to mean, like what it means when people are talking about it and what it is going to come to mean. And something that's really interesting to me, uh, it's a broader kind of dynamic I see online, but like there is currently an effort to rescue the idea of neoliberalism, to build a vision around it, not from the people who you think of as neoliberals. Like they actually don't think of themselves as neoliberals. Like Barack Obama does not walk around being like, I'm a neoliberal. He's a liberal. Um, but you can go on Reddit. There's this place called R Neoliberal. There's people running in local elections in San Francisco now as neoliberals. And like what they are actually doing is building a globalist vision, like the particular thing that they got tagged for being. They're like, yes, that, but unironically. And I think that's a very interesting thing that you see happen. I mean, you see it happening among the nationalists right now, right? Like conservatives who are called nationalists for a while and kind of like slough it off that label. It's like, yes, that, but unironically. And like that's an interesting dynamic of the sort of hyperpolarized times we live in. But I also think um, – Okay, but yeah. practically, but practically, what do these new neoliberals want to do about untransparent – uh, shell companies and kind of this whole kind of like swirl that was really created originally. Uh, the idea of offshore zones was was kind of impelled right at the start as a way for people trapped in nationalist dictatorships to get their money out. It was kind of a it was it was a rights thing, you know. It was partly Jews in Nazi Germany, you know, Hitler wanted to trap their money. So how do we get the money out? And there was a connection between freedom and fighting dictatorships and offshore offshore tax havens. And now that this is the way that corrupt kleptocratic regimes operate who are very authoritarian. Uh, that's the way Putin operates. That's the way, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a lot of others operate. It's also maybe part of the Trump story. So they have something that started off as, in some ways, a good neoliberal principle, which has now been completely co-opted by, by the other side. So I, you'll actually have to ask them because I, I don't feel like I fully understand this um, emergent idea yet. But the, the the reason I was bringing this up, that I do try to think about the term neoliberalism and what people uh, – what I think people fundamentally mean in it is a market – is a dominant market ideology, a, a world where value is assigned by the market. But the thing I'm a bit more interested in is liberalism itself, which I think people are often trying to um, collide into neoliberalism, but it is not the same. And my colleague Zach Beecham just wrote a great uh, essay on the – what he called the anti-liberal moment. And he was talking about a lot of the critiques of liberalism coming from the worlds that you're that you're discussing right here. And something that he was saying in it, which goes, I think, to, to the point you were making a minute ago about the sort of former version of liberalism having lost some of its moorings in the end of the Soviet Union, right? Like there, there was a real tremendous ideological battle being fought out in, in the Western world in that period. And at some point, liberalism won in that way in the terms of at least like you should be speaking in the concept of rights. And so it, it, it won and then has begun a little bit to lose its state of envision. And something that he makes a point of is that one reason an identity-oriented liberalism has become the most vibrant part of liberalism, the, 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 the identities you see in the women's movement and in Black Lives Matter and in others, is that it actually has a vision of a world, which is a world based around the value of equality. And so there's – as much as you people try to like push that back in the bottle, the, the strength of the counterreaction to it actually speaks to the power of its underlying vision that people are trying to fight back against, that there is – 
there is kind of power in a vision of equality. And that like keeps people motivated where a lot of other parts of it have been sloughed off. But just like having that kind of idea of what are your end values? What is it that you're trying to change in the world? I don't know that you can operate in the kind of spaces that you are describing in the book, these spaces that end up being simplified down to identity and sort of vision and utopia um, without having a real clear sense of that. And the the, the political movements that don't, I think, are are really struggling right now. So, look, in the book, I don't want people to get the wrong impression about the book. The book is sort of like fun stories. It's not It's not a huge work of political analysis. And I have to say my personal focus is on one tiny bit of this massive problem that you just talked about, which is the space of media and propaganda and, and that bit of how democracy and liberalism, because liberalism is also an idea of debate and clashing different ideas, uh, and what's changing there. Look, the big metaphor... The big metaphors and principles and axioms that we had for a liberal democratic information space have broken down. That's the crisis that I'm describing, I hope in an amusing way in the book. So you just talked about the marketplace. So this metaphor that we all have of the marketplace of ideas, yeah, which is completely imbued in our logic of how we think about information, that eventually through some sort of weird rational choice theory, the best information will win out and quality will win out and we just have to be patient, has turned out to be in an era of information abundance, nonsense. So a bit like 2008 really undermined the idea of the market because of junk stocks, now junk news undermines the idea of the marketplace of ideas. But 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 other things have, have, have collapsed as well. Pluralism, key liberal idea, that pluralism will mean better debate, okay? Look, we have different media owners. Nobody should be romantic about the 20th century liberal democratic media system in any way. But we have enough oligarchic pluralism, at least, to clash together different ideas and have a little bit of, you know, a robust debate. It turns out that if you have so much pluralism, at one point society just fragments and there isn't enough of a shared reality to have a debate around. Again, that's a key concept which has stopped having a democratic kind of function. Um, I can go on. I mean, like, you know, even the kind of these values implicit in liberalism of and in liberal journalism of fairness and balance and objectivity, and you could hold, you know, power to accountable with truth. We've talked a lot about that. That doesn't hold anymore. So this kind of the foundational building blocks and metaphors that we had to guarantee a liberal democratic information space have started to fall apart. And that's I, really worrying. And and so let me, uh, I, I realize that something I'm doing is I'm pulling you a little bit too much into like the American context. The kinds of dynamics you're talking about are in competition with a, a much more mature both political and media system. And maybe it's losing, but at least you have more of these metaphors, more of a kind of counter reaction. But you talk a lot about systems that are both more authoritarian in the way they're controlled or they're more nascent in the way they have just where they are in their own development, right? They don't, for instance, have Mark Zuckerberg down the street and you can call him before Congress and do something about the way Facebook is working in that country as easily, say in the Philippines. And so one of the things that I found most scary in your book was that for systems that are developing now, they're developing in an extraordinarily different context than the American political system or, for that matter, the British political system developed. And the like, the most, I thought, um, pessimistic part of the book was a recognition that in this context where you can flood with information, the people who are best at flooding with information are the authoritarian systems, that maybe we are just in an age, given the um, platforms on which politics is operating, that for all the reasons you just expressed – is going to push people much more towards these kind of post-fact authoritarian systems than the one we were in before. Is that like a fair read? Yeah, but I want to I want to say how we fight this because <laughs> I want to end on a positive. Uh, not that we're ending, but I want to sort of 
make clear there is a positive. And I think actually in this little space of information, we can find a utopian future to aim for. Um, and I hope that's in the book. I mean, in the book, I have two moments where I kind of have the vision of a positive future for the information space, and then the vision disappears. I do it very tongue-in-cheek, but it is there because obviously the whole book is about the need for it. Maybe I didn't do it strongly enough, but let me do it strongly now. So, Duterte. Putin until quite recently, now it's changing, obviously, it's becoming just an old-fashioned Russian dictatorship, but for a long time he was playing a different game. You know, all these quasi-authoritarian, even that word doesn't quite fit, because Duterte actually lives in a competitive democracy. Duterte I mean, being the, the head, of, the head of, the of the Philippines, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, can we really say he's an authoritarian? I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a plural system. And that's the point. The difference between a democratic information space and a non-democratic one has completely broken down. Before we could say very, very easily, look, democracies have freedom of expression and pluralism. Dictatorships have closed systems that are controlled. Not anymore. The lines have completely blurred. The tactics that Duterte or Putin uses, troll farms, flooding the information space, gaming the algorithms, are exactly the same tactics that are used here. There they also can do violence, which Trump has still struggled to do violence, but he's kind of half inciting violence with a lot of his speech. So there's also like a, you know, there's a little bit of a mob mentality sort of like roaming America now as well. That's the problem. We have to develop a story, a political piece of storytelling, a piece of regulatory storytelling around what is a democratic internet. Now, I think that will entail making the internet far, far more transparent and interpretable. So you can understand whether what you see online is a bot or a troll, whether it's been put there in a fake way, who's behind a piece of, uh, of news um, about algorithms and having some sort of public oversight of algorithms to understand why different bits of information are there. That is a demand for more democracy, for more information, not less information. So it's still within a democratic paradigm. In a way, we live actually in a, in a censored system. We don't understand how the information environment around us is shaped. And that can be the principles of a democratic internet. And the Putins and Dutertes will hate that because they want, you know, their own systems to be closed. I know I've mentioned this before at the, at the start of our, our conversation, but now I'm repeating it. So that is kind of a piece of storytelling and a vision of a good internet that I think democracies can come around and will then be a definition of a democratic internet. That's what I think needs to happen. I think that's doable. I don't think that's hard. I think, I think that actually, I'm in a lot of working groups at the moment, which bring together experts from Europe and America to talk about regulatory reform. And I can see us coming together around this idea because it's, it's a, you know, it's actually still very much within the language and the philosophy of rights. I think my question with that vision um, is how much would that really do? Like, I, I think actually probably one place you and I disagree a bit is I think you overrate the role of troll farms in all this. Well, they're just an I example. Think, you know. but, but that's what I mean. Mm. They are just an example. And so I think that a lot of the individual operations are less effective than the book sometimes makes them seem. If I had I, – I just just don't buy like what political consultants say about their own work. Like I think Cambridge Analytica was probably almost entirely a failure. I think the Russian social media operation in America – probably changed an almost infinitesimal number of minds. Like I've looked at a lot of political science on this. Like I, I might just be in a more skeptical space than you. But the problem is, is that it's picking up on real things. No, but it's what they the, do domestically that matters. What they do in America was just kind of a bit of a piece of I agree that yeah. it's what they do domestically that matters. But it works because it's pulling out something real oftentimes. And the number of authentic but bad actors who arise in those spaces is tremendous. I mean, like you go look at Brazilian right-wing YouTube right now. Brazilian right-wing YouTube is not, to my knowledge, primarily like driven by the government in the sense of like it being like uh, sock puppets, but it's a scary place and it is 
unbelievably powerful in Brazil. And so like what a lot of for all the reasons that populism is a strategy works better in these spaces and it did in previous spaces, I wonder as much as I th- I agree that like labeling who is a troll, labeling what is a sock puppet, lab- labeling simply what is a bot, which is there's legislation in California yeah, to do right exactly now. that yeah. right now, I think would be an advance. I'm skeptical about how much it would do, that the the underlying things it is bringing out in real people seem like the worst of the problem. No, no, it becomes, this becomes a principle of envisioning a completely different internet. That will then level the playing field so the forces that do want genuine interaction can start to operate upon it. At the moment, the system is rigged towards, a, towards extremism and polarization, but also towards operating in the dark, yeah? So... You know, Brazil, I think, is probably a very good example. These closed WhatsApp groups, I mean, the fact that they're closed, the fact that, you know, you can't reach out to these people, it's very hard to, um, is 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 the problem. I mean, let's take the stuff of disinformation and sort of fake news. We don't really know who the audiences are consuming this stuff. We kind of have to trust Facebook about where it's going and who's listening to it. If we were to have an interpretable internet, we could at least then engage those audiences and understand. So it's about creating a playing field where interaction is possible. Getting into the question of media effects and does a troll farm affect something? Look, media effects is a deep and, and, and kind of like a sort of a 60, 70-year-old discipline now. And it's been trying to work out whether violent movies make people violent for 70 years and it still can't decide. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the whole, let's like, get into media effects as a discipline because that's such a, such a complex thing. How does one piece of information change something? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the values. I'm talking about the media system and the information space as something that's democratic and interpretable where democratic debate is possible. Yeah, Maybe one troll farm doesn't change very much. But the fact that Donald Trump can now make the argument that Google is biased against conservatives and we have no bloody way of checking it destroys that space of trust and interaction, which which is completely necessary for liberal democracy. Liberal democracy doesn't work if we have a genuine debate with each other. The fact that our information space is now within a black box that we cannot interpret will destroy democracy. So that's what's at stake. Not the the one bot or one troll farm, whatever. There's always people trying to game things. But we have to be able to understand how they're gaming and what they're doing to be able to talk to each other. So it's much, much more fundamental than that. And there's not too – because I like you – I don't want to sort of put too much in the hands of troll farms. Troll farms are only one chapter in the book, and then I move beyond them. I don't want to give a false impression. No. Uh, you should, people should read the book. This is also a good place, I think, to come to a close. So let me ask you what is always our last question, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? So I was warned about this. And look, I actually come from film. My background was in film. You can do three so films. So can, can I do films? Yeah, do films. I think they're really important to, to, to Americans. Um, so one, To Americans? To Americans. This is my, this is, this is my story. You guys don't read. <laughs> yeah. No, they're... So we've talked a lot about Russia in the 1990s, and I think a a very undervalued filmmaker who captured that sense of sense breaking down is called Kira Muratova, completely unknown here. She used to make kind of psychological realism in the 70s, like like sensitive films about like, you know, like, you know, husbands and wives and stuff like that. And in the 90s, she makes these amazing films about a society where language is broken down, where everyone's gone a little bit mad and where the ground of reality has disappeared. When I visited, visit Washington, D.C. these days, which I do very often, it's a bit like being in Kira Muratova sort of film, people just wandering around, staring at trees, going, collusion, I think it was collusion. Was it collusion? Collusion, is that my name, collusion? And people not talking to each other, but just like screaming past each other. I mean, the Washington DC dinner party is transformed from something that was robust debate to people just kind of almost screaming at themselves. They're not even like, you know, arguing. So, so Kira Muratova, if you want to have, you know, a filmmaker who kind of like 
captured 1990s Russia and Ukraine, but kind of like has wonderful echoes in America today. She's fantastic. Another thing which really helped me to make sense of what's going on now and was a guide to me during the writing of the book is the Russian, the Soviet conceptual artists of of the sort of 1970s and 80s. If there's one book to read about it, it's by Boris Groys, who's a great art critic, who's a Russian-American called uh, History Becomes Form. But what was so interesting about the Soviet conceptual artists of the 70s and 80s... They history Becomes what, you said? History Becomes Form. So it's like it's an art. History Becomes Form. History Becomes Form. I'll talk like an English butler because that's how you think. <laughs> everyone, I, I keep on getting told by taxi drivers here, like, you don't talk like an English person. You need to talk like this. And then you are English. What's so interesting about the Russian conceptual artists and why I, I find them so inspiring today, they're talking about a world where all forms of communication had become dominated by propaganda, by the Soviet states, you know, your personal life, everything, everything was somehow, you know, every kind of way of speaking and representation was dominated by the state. So how can you find a genuine way of expressing yourself and finding your individuality in a world where all language has been eaten up? And they have different approaches to it. My One of my favorite ones is, is Kabakov, who kind of takes uh, different forms of Soviet speech and kind of like breaks them apart and by colliding them tries to find like what's, you know, tries to let the human kind of escape in between them. We live in a kind of weirdly similar world now where every type of speech has now been eaten up by propaganda. I mean, I think social media is so fascinating because it's about self-expression. It's almost like diaries, you know, this is what I think. It should be the ultimate you know, expression of your individuality. And instead, you're expressing yourself in order for data brokers to analyze you and like flog you some new shoes. I mean, it's the complete, you know, it's the utter corruption of of like that really personal space that we used to have. It's all become performative and it's all manipulated. I mean, this is the great drama of social media. Self-expression used to be a way of standing up to power. Now, the more you express yourself, the more manipulatable, if that's a word, you are. That's a completely new idea and one that really kind of undermines liberal premises. So how can we write about the world where every type of language has been eaten up by manipulation? So I don't have a full answer to that, but it's very interesting looking at how sort of artists in the late Soviet Union were struggling with this and how relevant it feels today. And my book is kind of an attempt to deal with that. How do you convey reality when every type of representation of reality is now some form of, 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 um, uh, of propaganda and controlled by someone? So, so those, I think that's more than enough. That is plenty. Yeah. Um, and where can people follow your work? Oh, I should do more. I, I, because I'm now, I have this little think tank. Um, I, I've been doing less journalism, but but I'm going to go back to it. Um, so I do have a column in the American interest, which I'm really sloppy with and I write once a month. And that's kind of my policy and regulatory stuff. But, you know, I, st I still write for the London Review of Books. Uh, I'm going to make more of an effort to write for the New York Review of Books. So that, that's kind of my natural home. It's just, I'm kind of, I'm 40, I've got three kids and a job. And sadly, and it's again the crisis of journalism, um, sadly, I'm doing so much less writing than, than than I wish. So just follow me on Twitter. <laughs> What's your Twitter handle? I think it's just my name. Peter Pomerantsev or something. I there don't you know. Go. Or yeah. something. All or right, something well, like we'll that. figure Is it that out. Peter Pomerantsev. Peter Pomerantsev. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you to Peter Pomerantsev for being on the podcast. Thank you to all of you for being here. If you like the show, as always, please send it to a friend directly or rate it on Apple Podcasts. Those are the two ways the show gets before new people. And I'm always grateful if you take a moment and do it. If it was a worthwhile couple of hours, you do actually spend a couple of hours here. At any rate, um, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. And as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. 
Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.